and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good evening and welcome. And I thank you for setting aside this kind of time to be with each other in this way. This is the nourishment of Sangha practice. And briefly, let me do a sound check. How are we? You okay? Can you hear all right? We're good? Okay. Thank you. That helps me know whether I have to shout or not. <laughs> so I've been wondering for myself and for all of us, how is it that we can maintain what I will call open-hearted devotion to this way, this what I feel as an all-inclusive way, how can we maintain this open-hearted devotion when there's so much around us that's painful? And the tendency is, of course, to want to protect. You know, our, our body-mind is filled with messages from capitalism, from politics, from uh, the marketplace from sometimes family issues or things that happened at work last week or things that happened years ago that are still haunting. You know, sometimes casual interactions with strangers that were inspiring and other times painful. So, <clears throat> especially during this COVID time, we may have been feeling somewhat separate from the world, isolated. And as we're, Patrick skillfully spoke of last week, related to war and making reference to the European Buddhist Union's comments about war. You know, there's a lot that we could be protecting ourselves from and yet, it's required of us that we maintain some kind of open-hearted connection. <clears throat> we are always actually intimate with the world beyond our doors and the world beyond our windows, even though we may not be aware of it. And I would say that the design of our practice, the aspects of our practice, uh, every facet of what we do in the Triple Treasure, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, <clears throat> every aspect is designed to establish without doubt and without hesitation that we're in this together. And literally that one person's progress and one person's well-being depends upon the progress and well-being of the whole. In the letter from the European Buddhist Union, Patrick read it, and I want to underline this particular part. 
A shared moment of practice is very important in the face of crisis. And then again, especially in this century, it's the task of all of us to become one big human family on this planet, supporting and respecting each other. Diplomatic dialogue, wisdom, and compassion must take precedence over weapons and aggression. So we can feel that, of course, that's true at the national level and international level. It's a little harder to feel that at the personal level. And I want to go exactly there <laughs> because this is where practice occurs. I have been reflecting uh, this week, especially when I was an elementary school teacher not so much at the high school level, but at the elementary school level. Every year we would produce a winter program. And for many years I taught my students that beautiful little song, May Peace Begin With Me. And their sweet, innocent voices, they would sing full volume wholeheartedly. Their families would be in the audience and other students as well. May peace begin with me, innocent in their, in their beauty. And even though you're not elementary school students, <laughs> I would like to deliver the same message. Peace begins right here. Catherine made reference to this, you know, in uh, what Patrick led last week, why we are at war. And uh, in Catherine's writing, she made reference to the inner judge or the inner critic. And that inner judge that we would project onto other people because we don't want to necessarily feel that pain ourselves, we'll judge somebody else instead <laughs> or criticize someone else instead. Or sometimes we turn it inward. You know, either way, it's toxic. So when that inner critic is out of balance, it has the potential to destroy relationships, to turn, if it's an individual thing, to turn our mind toward anxiety, toward depression, and actually to sap our physical and creative energy and undermine our devoted practice. But I want to underline that the inner critic is not an enemy. It actually contains the wisdom of some discernment. So rather than try to push away or destroy that inner voice, it's powerful, you know, it's hard to push away. Our work is actually to become strong and clear enough to hear its truth. To hear its truth in part means widening our view. And through our practice, we have the skills and we have the inquiry practices to clarify and transform, transmute even, our relationship to that inner critic. How do we do this? I would like to speak about models in our practice that we have for this. Particularly, this is the practice of finding ourselves where we are in the midst of others, 
and finding our Dharma position. Suzuki Roshi spoke about this in a very simple way. He said, how to apply Zen in everyday life is not difficult. If we live in each moment, that is Zen, whether you are sitting or working. Living in each moment is Zen. Zen is our everyday life. So, living in each moment, let me speak about that. We, um, in our practice, we develop some skill at looking at the conditions we are in and figuring out how to respond from the connected self instead of from the self-serving self. <laughs> and in a community as ours, um, we all have different communication styles, different work styles, information processing styles. And um, I think it occurs that we misunderstand each other fairly frequently, you know, like if I had I should, shouldn't say if I had. When I had a grouchy moment last week, <laughs> you may be expecting me this week to continue to be a grouch. So, based on your experience last week, you're setting up an expectation for this week. Our practice is an invitation to uh, see through the tendency to make stuff up. <laughs> to see through the tendency to make assumptions and respond to the actual person who is before you rather than a preconceived notion about who this person is. Uh, we have models for this in our practice and I want to bring forward Mahapajapati. This is the time of year when we celebrate her. Uh, Mahapajapati Gotami the first woman to receive, to request, and then receive priest ordination from the Buddha. And you may remember that Mahapajapati is Mahamaya's sister. Both of them were married to Suddhodana. It doesn't matter what you think of that, that was a cultural norm at the time. <laughs> so. They were both spouse to Suddhodana. And as you know, Mahamaya died at childbirth, and the child that she birthed, we now call Siddhartha Gautama the Buddha. So when Mahamaya died, Mahapajapati picked up the task of raising him, along with her own children. So she is, Mahapajapati is the Buddha's foster mother and also his aunt. And then as he became known for his teaching, she became his disciple. It is said that uh, she requested of the Buddha to be ordained. She actually cut off her hair and uh, as was the tradition of the time for disciples, she cut off her own hair and asked to be ordained, and he re he refused. So she continued to practice and gathered, ending up, ended up gathering some 
records say 500 women and other records say 5,000 women. <laughs> she gathered a great number of women who became her students. And at some point, they uh, walked together to Vesali. They occupied Vesali, <laughs> where the Buddha was, and she repeated her request to be ordained. And again, the Buddha refused. Then, Ananda, as you know, uh, being the attendant to the Buddha for the many years of his teaching, 40 years or more, asked the Buddha, My dear companion, are women capable of realizing the various stages of sainthoods? And the Buddha responded, Yes, of course. So now Ananda, having learned well from the Buddha, <laughs> using his own uh, logic to convince the Buddha, <laughs> said, after the Buddha said, yes, of course they are capable, Ananda said, if that is so, then it would be good if women could be ordained as nuns. And then the Buddha considered this. If, Ananda, Mahapajapati Gotama would accept the eight conditions, it would be regarded that she is ordained. And so Mahapajapati Gotami did accept these eight conditions and was deemed to be a bhikkhuni. And you may remember that in the Lotus Sutra, it is said that uh, Mahapajapati receives a prediction from the Buddha that she will attain enlightenment in a lifetime. What's significant about this for us, seeing the person who is in front of us rather than some imagined person in front of us, seeing the person freed from our constraints. <clears throat> so even though the Buddha had still the constraints of the cultural conditioning of the time and pressed upon her the eight conditions, what's significant about this is that the Buddha changed his mind. He noticed, oh yes, that fixed view is no longer appropriate here. <clears throat> so even after Gotami had the eight conditions imposed upon her, uh, she continued to work and lead women. And she proved, it's, it's an error to say there's no need to prove it. <laughs> she showed that women could follow this path as vigorously as anyone. You know, women were viewed at the time as inferior beings. So this shows that Mahabhajapati broke that cycle and made it possible for the world to see women as leaders. I would say that this is a demonstration of her occupying her Dharma position she spoke truth to power. 
she relied upon resources, Ananda advocating for her, for example, and she refused to be refused. There is a gift for our era in this dynamic. We all have perspective. We have the conditioning of our lives. We have the cultural and societal constraints that we have received in some cases that we have had imposed upon us. We all have some kind of limitation and we can all loosen the grip. That's part of the design of our practice. This is where I would say uh, intention and action meet. How about if we make the effort to free ourselves from our limited and limiting views? By doing this, by meeting who we're meeting rather than who we think we're meeting, both the meet-er and the meet-e are freed of some constraint. Why would we not offer this gift to each other? Really, because I would rather hold my view, because of course my view is right, you know, or may I broaden this view and allow it to be an expression of open-hearted devotion to the all-inclusive way. We have to remember that we're not practicing from ourselves, this for ourselves. This is the gist of Mahayana Buddhism, actually. There's always a perspective that can broaden and deepen our view. Even Zazen itself, you know, the mind would like to grip and uh, dominate Zazen. If you find yourself thinking during Zazen, that's okay. Let your mind think. That's its job. It will loosen its grip of it on its own. <laughs> While it's busy thinking, notice what else is happening. Breathing in, breathing out. <laughs> My heart is beating. Sound of a neighbor's dog. Sound of someone nearby yawning maybe so all of this is happening simultaneously the mind wants to think it's primary <laughs> it's not that it's not useful it's just not the only thing that's going on our everyday life is lived in connection i would like to speak a bit about how the triple treasure is the design for us to see that we live in connection. So let me outline something here. The triple treasure we know as Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. In the realm of Buddha, this is our own truest self. There's the historical Buddha, of course, and there is our own truest self. We meet this one in Zazen. And the essential activities of this is returning to the cushion on a daily basis, participating in extended practice such as sashins and desits. Mm -hmm. What we're doing here is um, just sitting, shikantaza, the just sitting 
awakening from distraction and awakening from dullness and returning to this moment. This is what Suzuki Roshi is talking about. If we live in each moment, that is Zen. So Zazen itself is the training to be able to do just that. Okay, now the realm of Dharma. This is the realm of study, the realm of wisdom, the realm of um, what people before us have taught us about the way things are or Suzuki Roshi's phrase, things as it is. The essential activities of this are talks such as this. This is a version of study. Or when we participate in service and hear the recitation or participate in the recitation and chanting of the ancient teachings, that is a version of study. These all are in Dharma. What we're doing here is studying, for example, Dogen's teachings that explain um, what Buddha was trying to teach in those 40 years. The truth of suffering and the possibility of the release from suffering with the Eightfold Path, right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. When we're studying the Dharma, everything we study is about that. When people over the years, in their culture, in their place, in their time, for those people, expressed their teaching it was making the effort to have those people have access to what the Buddha had taught. So now Sangha. The essential activities of Sangha, meeting together, practicing together, working together, uh, participating with each other and skillful means. And these have obvious essential activities that we engage in. For example, the activity of governance, the board and uh, administration, the practice of soji, the cleaning temple, cleaning, the practice of samu, which is work day. Also in sangha practice, uh, full moon ceremonies or the initial reception of the precepts in a formal way. These are all the work of Sangha. Now if you can picture this, these three domains of our practice that are actually one jewel, we talk about them as three but they're actually one thing. There are overlaps. For example, uh, the realm of Buddha, Zazen, overlapping with the realm of Sangha and work practice. We're keeping the forms, we're keeping the activities uh, so that we can stay uh, in, a, in a temple that is clean and well-tended. The overlap between Zazen and study 
the meaning of zazen in the context of what the Buddha taught. How is it that zazen itself is helpful to understand what the Buddha taught? And the overlap between work practice and study. Finding the significance, really, of seated meditation as it applies to everyday life. How do we apply this capacity for um, stability and reflection when we're working side by side, when we're being irritated by each other? How can we do this without creating micro wars? Our life is lived in connection. Zen is our everyday life. I would like to say that uh, um, how can I say it? We have to be able to come together. As you know, Thich Nhat Han spoke about this in the book called Being Peace. Sangha life becomes more and more essential as a refuge and as a support. Following the Buddha's Parinirvana, he offered, as you know, the Brief Admonitions Sutra. I think it's important to note that he said more than once, Stop crying about losing me. They knew he was dying, you know, at the Parinirvana. Stop crying. Enacting the precepts is the same as my actual presence in the world. So to this day, when we are receiving the precepts and participating in Sangha life for the benefit of the whole, we are in actuality presencing the wisdom of the Buddha. So when we hear admonitions or when we hear the precepts, they're not meant to be sacred, really. We need to read them, listen to them, think them, contemplate them, investigate them in the present experience. Then only will we know what the truth is hiding in plain view. In Buddhism, we cultivate a deep and enduring trust in the teachings of the Buddha and many generations of wise women and men who have carried these teachings forward. And this deep and enduring trust uh, supports us as individuals to fully meet whatever situations we encounter, to see through preconceptions, to see through our fear, to see through uh, critical, judgmental. This trust grows from our own direct experience of the teachings. And it can only grow when we apply them to our actual lives. So we do what we call taking refuge as an act of faith. This is an expression of our willingness to return again and again 
not that I'm not going to make mistakes, but rather after I make a mistake, uh, I'm vowing to return. Each morning we recite all my ancient twisted karma. And we recognize it that comes forward as greed, hatred, and delusion. And we recognize that we express greed, hatred, and delusion through our bodies and through our speech and through our minds. So each morning we recite that. And at the end of that recitation, we say, I now fully avow. So for this day, I'm taking up the practice. And immediately thereafter, we take refuge in Buddha, in Dharma, and Sangha. So recognizing that these are the conditions that I'm bringing to my life, I now avow, turn and take refuge. We do this as an act of faith, returning again and again to the wisdom of the elders, even while our habitual or cultural tendencies would make us self-centered and greedy and divisive. So, Please, I will open in a moment to conversation, but please take it to heart, you know, that uh, those lovely, innocent children voices, let peace begin with me, are our actual voices. We could sing that song too. The design of our practice is to establish without hesitation or doubt that we're in this together. Please let's continue to cultivate the Sangha treasure.